so that the filibustering begin. I rise today to begin to filibuster. I will speak until I can no longer speak. I will speak as long as it takes. I'm prepared to stand on this floor and talk about the need for this body to come together for frankly as long as I can because I know that we can come together on this issue. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records or to, to make a spectacle. I am simply here today to take as long as I can to explain to the American people the fact that we have got to do a lot better. Now let me just enumerate some of the reasons. We're engaged in a filibuster, a way to divert attention from what we're doing today, to obstruct, and that's what's going on today. Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. I am joined by two West Coasters today. A little bit further south on the West Coast is James Fennessy, who's in San Francisco. Say hello, James. Hello. Very good. And a little bit to his north is Heather Meyer, calling in from Portland, Oregon. Hello. Today we're talking to Heather about her background in history, but we're also going to talk about her new book that she's publishing, an article that she has recently published in the Washington Post, and anything else that comes our way. So, you know, what is your name and what do you do? My name is Heather Mayer, and I uh, am an adjunct faculty member at Southern New Hampshire University, and I also teach part-time at Portland Community College. Heather, can you provide us a little bit about your background, so, you know, your education, how you became interested in history, um, and then we'll move into how you decided to use history to get a job, or multiple jobs, as it sounds. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting when we talk to our students about how the historical context in, with, in which a historian is writing kind of shapes their view of history, um, that was very clear for me um, in what was happening in the world when I was going to college. So... I started my freshman year at the University of Oregon, and that was when the 1999 Seattle WTO protests were happening. So that was very big in the news. And I ended my college career at, or with my bachelor's at Portland State University right as the war in Iraq was beginning, and there was a lot of protests happening around there. So I was always interested in history and actually studied ancient Greek history for my undergrad. But all of these things going on politically really led me to start to focus more into U.S. history and into things like how people had protested wars in the past. And that's where I started to focus my graduate career when I went to the University of California at Riverside, studying the history of radicalism um, in the United States and the history of protest and social movements. That led me to focus more specifically on a union called the Industrial Workers of the World, who were uh, pretty active in the early 20th century in my region of the country in the Pacific Northwest. And so I focused my dissertation on that, moved to British Columbia to get my PhD at Simon Fraser University, and finished my dissertation there. Meanwhile, I moved back to Portland and started teaching at Portland Community College, um, and so I've been here for about 10 years. Great, thank you. And so if you're talking, your dissertation was on the international workers of the world, and so what were your conclusions on those guys? Well, um, the industrial workers of the world, 
common uh, mistake yeah, what, we talk about the IWW, <laughs> International Workers of the World. No. Yeah. <laughs> God, don't make them sound more communist than they are, Rob. <laughs> All those commies, <laughs> the socialists, whatever epithet you want to throw at them. <laughs> So uh, the industrial workers of the world um, were pretty commonly organizing people like lumber workers in the Northwest. And it was always often talked about that they were these men. They were hobos. They were traveling by train. You know, they were kind of these rough and tumble guys. And then I was looking at these pictures and I kept seeing women in the pictures. And I'm like, what? So everybody's talking about how it's all men. But yet every time I see a picture of a union hall, there's a bunch of women there. So who are these women? You know, what were they doing there? So what I started to look at was, you know, this union that was traditionally seen as very masculine and male did attract women participants. And so why was that? And it was really because they kind of advocated, you know, in addition to organizing people into unions based on industries rather than based on kind of tiny specific crafts or trades, They also had much larger kind of social goals and ideas. You know, they advocated for birth control in a time when it wasn't legal to send information about birth control over the mail. Many of them protested U.S. entry into World War I. They talked about prostitution as an economic problem rather than a kind of moral failing on the part of women. So they kind of embraced all of these issues that were relevant to women during uh, the early 20th century as well as they didn't really focus on voting. So during this time, a lot of more middle-class and upper-class women were interested in the fight for women's suffrage and their ability to vote in the United States. And this union being a bit more radical kind of thought, well, the vote hasn't really helped the working-class man. You know, why is it going to help the working-class woman? And so they weren't against suffrage, but it wasn't really that important to them. So working with this union was kind of a a way of activism for these women that wasn't very narrowly defined into fighting for the right to vote. And that makes a lot of sense, given that the other unions of the time, you know, the AFL and the, um, I'm drawing a blank on the third one, Knights of Labor, I guess, those those had a bit more of a kind of a traditional viewpoint. I mean, the the IWW, they're always held up, you know, in all the history survey classes and in the Gilded Age classes and all that. They're always held up as kind of the radical wing of the labor movement uh, during the Gilded Age. And so it it is interesting to hear that. I mean, it sounds like that's kind of a deserved classification in some ways because they are calling for all these changes to not just the workers and like the labor structures and the working conditions and all that, but they're they're also looking to call for changes in you know, social aspects and cultural aspects and all of that. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, it is the case, as with many movements, you know, the ideals don't always match the reality. You know, they they talked a lot about the need to organize women, but, you know, they weren't always that successful in, in organizing women workers. They talked about organizing workers, you know, regardless of, of race or skill, but they weren't always successful in doing that. But it definitely provided an opening for people to kind of take this organization and use it to be activists in many different ways and in changing the entire social structure. Actually, you touched on another point that I wanted to bring up. So we introduced women, and you could see, you know, what brought you to this conclusion or uh, piqued your interest was seeing the faces of these women in the crowd. What about race and the IWW? Well, in the Pacific Northwest, the region that I study, um, they weren't that successful in organizing non-white workers. Really, the majority of the women I found 
were born in the United States or were born in Canada, and many, you know, some parents were European immigrants, but much more of a kind of white working class that was active in the region that I'm studying. They did do a better job in other places, like you know, the dock workers in, in Philadelphia, some other parts of the country, some in you know Mexico, or sorry, in Southern California. They, they were around the world, organized in many different countries as well. But they, they weren't always that successful in this region in particular. I mean, there was a lot of Chinese and Japanese workers, Filipino workers in the Pacific Northwest, and I haven't seen a lot of evidence of successful organization by the IWW, but there were Indian immigrants in the Northwest that organized with the IWW. So it kind of depends on the particular location, um, how successful they were. Okay, and I suppose it depends on the, the time period as well, because I don't think it was until around World War II when you had an integrated military and a lot of African Americans actually being stationed uh, particularly in Oregon, that you actually saw a huge influx of diversity into the region, at least, you know, black diversity, just based on Oregon's history and their laws against black citizens and immigration in the, in the state. Yes, Oregon has a very long history of being not hospitable to, to non-white people as, as in many parts of the country. Um, but Oregon was particularly exclusionary. And so you're right, it's not until World War II not even just with um, the military, but with a lot of workers coming to work in the shipyards of Vanport in the kind of Portland area that we see a larger influx of African-Americans coming to live like in the Portland area. So that was a huge demographic shift, um, as well as the demographic shift of Japanese-Americans being interned during World War II. So we do see a lot of those changes happening during that period. Yes, those are connected, but very different conversations have sort of uh, Oregon's uh, beginnings as a white utopia, the race laws that they had created leading up to uh, around World War II, and then the changes that occurred after that, as well as the various connections to the Klan that we see in Oregon, uh, even as high up as uh, high political offices. Yeah, Oregon had the highest KKK membership outside of the South, and there was actually you know, laws put in place in the 1920s to try to mandate public schooling for children, which um, had the goal of keeping children out of Catholic private schools, as well as keeping them out of any kind of radical free schools that you know, radical workers had, had put together. Um, that was declared unconstitutional, but that was supported by the Klan in Oregon. What was the time frame that you're focusing on in your research? Yeah, World War II would be when there'd be huge demographic change coming to the West Coast. I mean, all the way California, Oregon, Washington, and all of that. But you're focusing, is are you focusing more on the, specifically the Golden Age era, like the 1880s, 1890s? What, what was the time span of your work? Well, the uh, IWW was founded in 1905. So that's kind of where I begin. And I take it to 1924, which is a, a particular year for a couple reasons. So a lot of members of the IWW were arrested during World War One and in the kind of Red Scare that followed World War One and the radical, the repression of radicals in in the United States. So the leadership of the Union across the country um, was kind of decimated during that time period. In 1924 is when those political prisoners were released. And there was a kind of a split in the union, a lot of disagreements happening at that time period. So I'm studying very specifically into the time period around World War One and the, the decade prior to that. 
Okay, that makes sense. And this is actually really cool because usually when we think of the labor movement of the progressive era, usually we don't think of the West Coast because at that point, kind of the stereotypical rural areas and all that, even though there are some pretty important ports like Portland, Seattle, uh, San Francisco. But yeah, we tend to think, think of the East Coast as kind of the hotbed of labor activism and all that. So it's really interesting to hear that that's going on on the West Coast also. Yeah, and part of what's happening in the West Coast is these cities, it's Seattle in particular, is going through these massive, you know, industrialization, you know, connection to the rest of the country, huge population influx in a series of a couple decades that happened over a century or so in, in other parts of the country. Um, so it's this really rapid changes that are happening. And yeah, we do see when we look at labor history um, in general, it really is focused on, you know, Chicago or New York or these big industrial cities in the East that just stop the same situation happening out West. You know, industry is different. The population is different. And so that's why I kind of wanted to study in this region that shows a very kind of different picture of labor during that period. Which brings up another question. When you're looking at the IWW or really any labor union in Oregon, how does it break down rural versus urban areas? Do you tend to focus mainly on the cities or was there also activity out in the uh, rural areas of the state? There was activity in the rural areas. The way I focused my research was on the cities because that's where I found there to be more of kind of a family-friendly participation, more husband and wife wobbly teens, more union halls that kids came to. And these cities were, there was a lot of particular events that happened. So I talk about a free speech fight in Spokane in 1909, and then the Everett Massacre in 1916, a Seattle Taylor strike in 1912. So I kind of focused on these really specific events in each chapter. But there was a lot of you know, rural participation in the IWW, and a lot of these workers are moving all around the region. You know, they're working in the lumber yards, they're working in agriculture, they're you know, shoveling snow in the wintertime. And so they're really kind of just moving around the region, but usually coming into these smaller cities or towns during their off times or between jobs. And so this is kind of where you see these little focal points for the union. That's one of the things that I like to talk about whenever I'm teaching like a survey class on modern U.S. history is to talk about how it was actually the rural areas tended to be some of the more what today we would call progressive. But because, you know, it's like the populists in the Midwest and the South were calling for nationalizing industries and nationalizing the railroads and all of that in the 1880s, 1890s. And so it's, it's always interesting to talk about how rural areas are getting, in some cases, radicalized either by the IWW or by the People's Party or whatever. But it's it's interesting to think about how today we tend to think of the rural areas as being the most kind of conservative politically uh, areas of the country. But back at the turn of the 20th century, that wasn't always the case. There was actually a lot of radicalism to be found in the rural areas. Yeah, I, th I think that is the case. And it, and it really depends kind of one of the things that I, I found in trying to do this research. You know, it depends what's going on in those particular areas, you know, had there been a strike recently or had there been a wage cut or had there been an industry that shuts down, you know, and how had people responded to that? How much repression was there? So, you know, there's all kinds of these really local conditions that help set the stage for these kind of bigger events. Like when the IWW comes to town, depending on what has been happening in that town, how well they'll be received. 
So let's talk about the resources in research for a second, because you mentioned that a photograph was your gateway into this research, into becoming interested in the IWW and, and the different causes that they promoted. And it's interesting because you also say that traditionally they were seen as these migrants or hobos at the time, you know, very disorganized and not, not really being a more professional type of union, which is interesting because I imagine that that depiction comes through in the newspapers of the time. I'm sure that politicians are painting the IWW in a very specific light as as are businesses. So what type of research do you do in order to overcome what seems like a very homogenous depiction of the IWW from various locations in order to find the nuances and really get to the core of what they stood for and, and the, the types of causes that they were promoting? The, the research part, you know, it was... It was much more difficult than I had originally thought it was going to be. And you're right, there's there's so much bias to the type of sources that are available. A lot of records of, for the, from the Union were destroyed by the, the government and by authorities. So, you know, there's a ton, tons of stuff that, that's been destroyed. I went to Detroit, to Wayne State University, to the official archives of the Union, and I found, like, nothing about women there. I was like, no wonder nobody's written about the women. There's nothing here. You know, so I had to find a lot of different types of sources. And that was, you know, traveling to a lot of smaller archives around the Northwest. And a lot of what you find is, you know, are sources either by newspapers who are anti-IWW or spy reports, which, you know, again, you're not going to be a very good spy if you never report on anything. So who knows how much you're making up or exaggerating in those reports, you know, reports by policemen, by, you know, law enforcement or other officials, you have to look at the biases that they're bringing with them and try to understand what's, what's happening there. For example, I found this huge report in Spokane about conditions in the prisons. And they had interviewed all of these people who had worked in these women's prisons. And they keep talking about how basically one of the IWW women who was arrested was saying negative things about this other IWW woman who was arrested. And I don't have the actual recollections of either of these women to know if they didn't like each other or if they were friends or, you know, anything else. All I have is all of these people who have a very negative view of these two women trying to kind of make it look like they don't agree. And so you kind of have to, to sift through how much of that is the bias of the, you know, who is doing the telling and how much is kind of a grain of truth that maybe these two women really disagreed on on tactics or just had a personal conflict. So there's those kinds of things. But it was a lot of just picking at very fine threads leading to something else. Like uh, there was one sentence in an IWW newspaper that said, women in tailor shops on strike in Seattle. Okay, you know, let's try to look at a bunch of Seattle papers. Let's try to find something. That leads me to the name of a woman. I research her. I find this huge set of records from the immigration services because they tried to deport her for her radical leanings. So, you know, it just one thing kind of leads to another, but it wasn't it wasn't a simple, you know, go to one archive and find all the sources kind of research. So let's transition over to the book that you're publishing. Now, I'm, I'm guessing, based on the conversation here, that the book is going to be about this same topic. Is this basically a revision of your dissertation or have you gone in a completely new direction? It is a revision of my dissertation. It was changed to be hopefully more readable and interesting to a more general <laughs> audience than my dissertation. But, but yeah, I, I added a chapter to give kind of a more general history of the Northwest to help set people in that context. But it has, it has been a, a revision of my dissertation. And that came from a, a conference presentation that I was doing um, a few years into my research that somebody, um, and 
the acquisitions editor for the press, Oregon State University Press, saw my name in a conference program and said, you know, hey, we're gonna, we're also publishing a book about this woman that you're gonna talk about. So like, let's get together. And she just kind of, you know, kept checking in with me over the years of, you know, how's that research going? We'd, you know, we'd really like to publish it once you're done. And so that helped me get that connection to the press. And so when I was, you know, finally ready um, to make those revisions, that was who I decided to go with. We hear all the time, of course, that, you know, a dissertation as it stands is never going to be publishable. You have to make changes to it. And so what, what was your general strategy for making the changes from a dissertation to a publishable manuscript? My big strategies was, you know, having friends read it, you know, people who are not historians, but, you know, a general kind of educated, has some vague idea about U.S. history, but not a specialist by any means. Having real people read it? That's right. a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> because those are the things that, like, if I said a word like their red card, I forget that most people don't know what a red card is. That was the membership card in the IWW. So uh, there was a lot, you know, that I needed help just kind of pointing out, like, hey, I don't know what you're talking about here. You're, make, you're assuming I know something that I don't. And so that was really helpful to kind of point out those areas. Um, and in the, the review process, you have anonymous reviewers that give you feedback as well. And some feedback from the editors, you know, of just these are the places that we need more context. And that's the opposite of what I was doing in the dissertation. I had I actually had what was nice is I had a lot of that stuff that I had cut out of the dissertation because my advisor had said, you know, that's too much background. That's not your original research. We don't need that here. So I had kind of a lot of that stuff piling up of that background context, but that's what was useful to, to help get some outside perspective. Because when you're when you're digging into a subject for so long, you know, it's hard to remember what the average person knows about it, which is not very much. Right. It's always amusing to me to hear that type of hear people say that kind of thing. Because we hear when we're writing dissertations that no, 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 you got to cut all that stuff out. That stuff makes your it's too popular or it's too that that stuff doesn't matter. And then as soon as you want to go to publish it, you have to then take all that, put all that stuff back in and then remove all the methodological stuff that your advisors insisted that you put in there. So it's, it's weird how we've got this kind of two track system going where you're supposed to write one product for the dissertation, but then you're supposed to change it dramatically to make something new for an actual publication, which is just a very strange setup in academia. It is. And that's, you know, that's part of why I wanted to go with Oregon State University Press, because they... You know, it's still, it's an academic publisher. It still goes through peer review, but they focus on trying to reach a more popular audience. You know, the book is only available in paperback, you know, fairly inexpensive. It's not a big, you know, expensive hardbound edition that only libraries can purchase kind of thing. So I appreciated kind of going with the press from the very beginning, whose goal was to have it be more readable. So speaking of audience, we've talked about the writing of a dissertation and what that requires. We talked about how you go about editing that to publish, um, not necessarily you know a popular book, but something that's more accessible to the public. Let's talk about newspapers, that thriving industry, <laughs> because recently you published an op-ed in the Washington Post. Can you talk a little bit about how you end up getting in contact with a, a newspaper and publishing an article? Because that article itself, while connected to very current topics also revisits the IWW and brings in a lot of historical themes to make a very, very clear argument. So um, I love the article and I'd love to hear a little bit more about, well, our, 
our listeners would probably like to know a little bit more about what's in it, but also how you came to that point of publishing and, and how that worked, what the process is. So, you know, in contrast to the book, which took many, many, many years, from even just my first turning in the draft to the press to it actually being done, this Washington Post article was about a week and a half from idea to publication. Wow. Um, yeah. So the Washington Post has, for the last year or so, had a kind of a section, a series of columns called Made by History. And their goal is to get historians to reflect on current events, um, you know, to bring their expertise to an understanding of current events. And so it kind of been following and, and reading some of these columns and really enjoying them. I was thinking about, you know, over the, the summer and, and into last year, there have been a lot of rallies kind of under the guise of free speech. Particularly in the Northwest, there's there's one group that keeps organizing these rallies and they, they call them free speech rallies. And then they're met by counter protesters and occasionally they've been brawls in the streets of Portland. And so I just kept thinking about how, you know, like this free speech thing now is associated in so many people's minds with the right or the extreme right with this idea of free speech and usually things, speech that people find objectionable. And then I reflected on, you know, this, it's in such contrast to the way free speech was used by the IWW, the union I study, a century ago. You know, they did these things that they were called free speech fights, where basically, you know, cities or towns would try to put together an ordinance to keep members of the IWW from speaking on the street. And speaking on the street is how they would get workers' attention and try to kind of organize and galvanize workers. And, you know, sometimes they do it in very amusing ways. They would, you know, somebody would stop and go, help, help, I've been robbed, and get everybody's attention. And they would say, robbed by the capitalist system, and then you know, <laughs> go into their big speech about industrial organization. So cities would try to shut them down and say they couldn't speak on the street. And what they would do is test these ordinances by calling all of their members to come into town. And so this happened in a lot of different places, um, Spokane, Washington, San Diego, California, Denver, Colorado, there's one in, in Sioux City. And so they would basically fill the jails by people standing up on a soapbox trying to speak and getting arrested. And then the next person would get arrested and the next person to try to kind of test, you know, A, to test the constitutionality if these things, if people could actually have a, a case go through the court system, um, but also just kind of test the resolve of the city, test the, you know, the, the jails and their willingness to try to shut shut them down. And so this has this kind of very radical history of free speech as a tool for, you know, emancipation, for reaching workers, for organization and solidarity that, you know, I think is interesting and I think we should hold on to um, rather than now just kind of equating free speech with things that we don't want to hear people say, you know, objectionable things that people say, thinking about this history of it. So I had been kind of making these connections in my head and I just kind of on a, on a whim, said, you know, I will, I'll email the editors. So there are some historians that work as editors of this series of columns made by history in the Washington Post. And I just pitched the idea and said, you know, what do you think if I wrote something that connected these current free speech rallies with the history of the free speech fights? And they said, yeah, that sounds interesting. I said, all right, I'll get you a draft next week. So I wrote a draft and I sent it to one of my grad school colleagues and said, what do you think? Does this, does this make sense as an argument? And then I sent it to the editors and I went through four revisions with the editors over four days. So every day it was, you know, sending it in, looking over it, feedback, revision, feedback, revision, feedback. 
until it got to a point that they felt it was ready to publish. And a lot of that was really, you know, it was taken down all of the, the beautiful details of history that I wanted to share with everybody, taking out <laughs> a lot of that, and strengthening kind of an argument, which it was just a very different type of writing than I'm used to doing. And so, you know, they kind of, they had a lot of suggestions, very specific feedback. It wasn't like, you know, change this or whatever. It was like, you need an example here or, you know, this argument needs to be strengthened. So it was really useful and helpful and like congenial feedback, which was really awesome to kind of do that. Sometimes feedback is not always the nicest thing um, in academic circles. So it was a good process. And then they just said, all right, you know, I think, I think it's good. It's ready to go. It'll publish in the next day or two. And there it was. That's really cool. It's it's amazing that you were able to write that in such a short amount of time. I mean, it, usually academics, we tend to write so slowly. Just the idea that you were able to write an entire thing and then go through four revisions all in the space of about a week and a half. That's just, that's just mind boggling from an academic perspective. And I also have two small children, six months and three years. So Holy it was God. not easy <laughs> to have you've done time is impossible. to do that. Yeah, it was pretty much after bedtime <laughs> every night was, was going in for another revision. But, you know, the subject was, you know, I didn't have to look up anything, really, because it was all in my head. You know, all the history, I'd been writing about it for so long. I had to, you know, look up a couple details of like, all right, how many people was that in this thing? But, I mean, I knew it. So the history was there. It, You know, it's kind of what I would have said. If, like, you know, for example, now, you know, if you ask me a question about it, it was pretty much me telling everything that I knew about this subject. And then what I had been thinking about and what I'd been hearing as it relates to current events. So it was, you know, it's not that long. It's I think 11, 1200 words. So it was stuff I already had in my head. It was really just kind of shaping it into an argument that would make sense to, to that audience. Yeah, that's interesting. And so obviously they probably don't require the same level of citations and all of that that we would think of, that we would expect to see in a history book because you're this is a much shorter the general argument you're not going to get bogged down in all the various quotations and all of that so you're probably not going to worry too much about having lengthy footnotes or endnotes or anything since I'm sure the Washington Post doesn't really want to publish all those endnotes and footnotes so they probably want it to be more of a straightforward think piece rather than something that's excessively cited right and that's really hard to do I mean it's, yeah, I bet. footnotes and citations are so ingrained in everything we do as historians and just simplifying things down to the very basics you know I had all of these sources that I wanted to you know cite and quotations and things and in the editing process, those just kept getting chopped. And so it is, it's, it's like you're fighting against your instincts to write like that. But that's what the majority of people are going to read. I would love for everyone to read my book, but that's going to take some time. You know, but people, it's, you know, on Facebook, when you pull up the thing, it says it's a four minute read. <laughs> you know, that's what people have, have time for. And so making it as accessible as possible without sacrificing accuracy and sacrificing the integrity of the history but making it really as, as kind of basic as you can. Yeah, I think it's great because it gives kind of a brief introduction to your style and your content and all of that. And then down at the bottom of it, they have a link to the book that's coming out. And um, so just to get back to that, what is the title of your book and when is it coming out? It is called Beyond the Rebel Girl, Women and the Industrial Workers of the World in the Pacific Northwest, 1905 to 1924. It is actually already out depending on where you try to get it from. I think Amazon is still pre-ordering. It says September 28th. But if you buy directly from the press, they're already shipping. Oh, cool. I guess they don't have the same uh, rigorous street dates as like DVDs do. <laughs> it's right. just when it gets out, it gets out. Right. <laughs> All of a sudden, people were telling me, oh, it's here. I was like, okay. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
right, and I great. get to do, if you're familiar with Portland all at, at all and um, Powell's City of Books, I get to do a, a book release book talk event um, at Powell's at the end of November. No, oh, I love Powell's. It's one of my favorite places on the planet. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. It's 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 a great bookstore. Yeah. And when uh, will you be making your way down the coast to San Francisco? <laughs> well, you know, hence the, the small children I mentioned. Um, yeah. I am not exactly free to do a book release. But, I mean, I'm kind of just, I'm going to look for events that will make sense um, that I, I can, you know, tie into other, maybe tie into conferences or, or if I am traveling, see if there's bookstores and whatnot. Because, you know, for any of you who aren't familiar with academic publishing, they are not paying me to, to go anywhere or or to do any of these kinds of things. So, you know, you, as an author, you kind of have to do it yourself to create some of that publicity and create some of those um, events. So it will just kind of depend where I'm going and who I can connect with. Yeah, that is always an important <laughs> thing to keep in mind is that we are not making money on these books in academia. The publishers might make some money, but the authors do not. You could pitch it as a reality show, The Couch Surfing Academic, and you can just go from town to town visiting people that you know, staying on their couches, and going to whatever local bookstore still exists and promoting right. your book. I, you know, I could hop the trains like the Wobblies did. And there you yeah. go. Exactly. <laughs> Very cool. They actually did have reading rooms in most of their most of their union halls. They, they did love to read and had a lot of published uh, material and, and books and, and reading rooms where, you know, no talking or smoking allowed in the reading room. There was a sign in one of the IWW halls. Well, you know, they got to spread their communist ideas somehow or other. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Heather, what do you have to recommend to us today? Well, I would like to recommend, as far as engaging in history, um, is following historians on Twitter. Um, not all of us are great at tweeting, but, you know, if you can follow a few great historians on Twitter, you can have a lot of, you can learn a, a lot of historical resources that connect to current events. So the most famous one right now is Kevin Cruz. You know, his book on suburbanization in Atlanta was very you know, fundamental to my grad school training, and he is great to follow on Twitter. Heather Ann Thompson writes about prisoners and the condition in prisons. She's won a Pulitzer for Blood in the Water. Um, is another great one to follow. So there's there's a lot of historians on Twitter who are very actively tweeting, you know, citing resources, citing books, and connecting to current events. Yeah, Kevin Cruz is a favorite of mine. Also, I did a bunch of urban history when I was in grad school, so I came across a lot of his writings also, and I stumbled across his Twitter feed a week or so ago, probably about the same time as most of America, when he got into that Twitter spat with Dinesh D'Souza, mm -hmm. which was an amazing takedown. I mean, regardless of your political mm -hmm. perspective and your opinion of, you know, the Trump administration and all of that, it is amazing the rapidity with which Cruz was able to just bombard facts <laughs> and just just let, I mean I'm sure he probably had it all laid out ahead of time before he started tweeting but the way it all played out on the Twitter feed it felt like he was just like okay well okay you want to hear about some guys that did this well boom 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 and he just did this like 20 or 30 episodes or instances or examples of the things that he was arguing and so it was it's just amazing to watch that stuff kind of play out in real time on Twitter as opposed to reading you know the final version of an academic book which had years in the making and all kinds of peer review and it's just interesting to see it happen in real time on a unfiltered feed like twitter it's really amazing to watch he did really great um debate commentary too during the the 2016 election oh really okay we were following him then yeah he would kind of live tweet um the presidential debates which were really interesting too oh that'll be good i'll, I'll, I'll keep following him then <laughs> we'll see where this goes <laughs> all right james what do you have for us today I was going to recommend the Twitter feed of Ted Cruz, 
No, I'm actually just kidding. That didn't even get laugh. Dude, that, um, no, I, that, that was just deep, just shock. <laughs> shock and horror. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I might have mentioned this once before, but um, one of the instructors at Southern New Hampshire University is also employed by something called Project Recover. And Project Recover is this for lack of a better word, project or partnership of various researchers at different universities, and it's both publicly and privately sponsored. But they go around using sonar and thermal cameras um, and underwater robotic technology, trying to find wreckages from World, I think specifically World War II. So their goal is to to find these, you know, whether it's a sunken ship or an airplane, and to see if they can locate the remains of any um, MIA POWs. So when they do they work in conjunction with the federal government and the government can notify the family of the deceased and close the case on these pow mias and most recently our instructor jason McHale, sent an article and you can also visit the uh, project recover website to review their blog and there's a video there as well about how they just discovered the remains of a world war ii destroyer off of the coast of alaska so the uss abner reed so if anybody is interested in either that specific story or the work that Project Recover does, uh, I think it's a great way to see how modern technology is being used in order to not only help find these POW MIAs, but give us a more complete understanding of more recent history within you know the past uh, within the past century. That's really cool. Right, and well, your my, recommendation? <laughs> my recommendation is a book called The Paradox of Preservation by Laura Alice Watt. It's about, uh, the subtitle is Wilderness and Working Landscapes at Point Reyes National Seashore. As I've mentioned on this podcast many times, my specialty is environmental history. And one of the things that environmental historians have been talking a lot about lately uh, ever since a, another historian by the name of William Cronin wrote a really influential article called The Trouble with Wilderness, there's been this concept going through environmental historians where there's a question of what actually do we mean by civilization versus wilderness. Wilderness is kind of a tricky concept because, you know, the, the mainstream conception of wilderness is that this is land that has never been touched by human hands. We should allow it to continue to not be touched by human hands. We should let it evolve and grow naturally, quote unquote. The problem with that is that there is virtually no land on planet Earth that has never been touched by human hands before. And so whenever you start talking about wilderness preservation, you run into this paradox where, okay, if humanity has influenced the development of this area that we want to preserve, what are we actually preserving? Are we actually preserving a wild state or are we preserving a state that is the product of human manipulation? And so this book is about Point Reyes National Seashore, which, as James knows, is a recreation area just north of San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge. They've got a beach there. They've got a famous lighthouse. It's, it's very picturesque, but it also has a whole bunch of dairy farms in the middle of it. And those dairy farms have been there since the 19th century. And so when San Francisco wanted to create or, or asked their congressional representatives to create a park for San Franciscans to go have recreation at, they chose Point Reyes, but they ran into this problem because Point Reyes is very beautiful, but it is also the product of hundreds of years of human manipulation because first there were Miwok Indians there, and then there were Mexican settlers there, and then there were American settlers there and dairy farmers. So that landscape is all created by human hands. And so if you're going to declare Point Reyes to become a national seashore and we want it to somehow return to a state of wilderness, 
how do you do that? When, when we pick, okay, we want the park to look like this going forward. Are we going to pick a time when the Miwoks were doing their thing or a time when the Mexicans were doing their thing or a point when Americans are doing their thing? And so the problem is that we, we have to choose a point in time that we think means wilderness, and then we have to somehow keep it there because the land is still going to continue to evolve. And so basically we have to choose a point at which humans influence the land and then, you, of course, you have to maintain it at that state. <laughs> you can't, if, you, if you were to just let it grow into wilderness, it's not going to be very pretty. And so suddenly the attractiveness of the region is going to go away. So what this book is all about is basically that paradox is that we want to preserve land in a wild state. The problem is that wilderness is not what we think it is. And so anyway, this book, it's, it's an interesting book. And I, I reviewed it for HNET and, and I can post a link to the review and I can post a link to the book also. But it presents an interesting kind of reconception of what is wilderness versus what is not wilderness. And Point Reyes is this place where it's not really wilderness, but we like to think that it's wilderness. And so it, it creates a very interesting dilemma for park administrators, because how do they maintain that wilderness when it's not actually wild, that kind of thing. So it's an interesting book. Great. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And all right, I think that is it. So thank you, Heather, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at filibusterhist. Follow us on iTunes. Follow us every. We are everywhere. For James Finnessy and Heather Mayer, I'm Rob Denning. Have a good day. Should I hang up, Rigoberto? Uh, do you have anything fun to talk about? Nah, not really. All right, well, then, yeah, go away. <laughs>